Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, August 12th installment of the Silicon Insider, the only uncensored look at life and business in the Valley. My name is Mike Malone. I'm here with special contributor Scott Budman, technology reporter for NBC Bay Area. Our producer is Jordan Henderson. Our East Coast correspondent is Bob Grove. And our host, as always, is the Silicon Valley Business Journal. Okay, let's get going, Scott. The streaming wars are heating up. Uh, uh, Disney overall now has more streaming customers than Netflix, 221 million to 220 million. That's interesting. It really is. That's I mean, you remember Disney shot out of like a cannon during the streaming wars. Remember, they had so much on day one, they actually shut down. Like they actually had problems. And this is Disney. This is a gigantic company. And Disney Plus has just really been piling on the subscriptions ever since. And you think about it, you know, it's a pandemic play, but it's also just they've got Marvel, they've got Star Wars, they've got Pixar. Uh, there are just so many franchises to choose from that uh, they're sort of redefining how to do this. Remember, Netflix sort of taught us all how to do this with various shows and then original programming. It turns out having a gigantic library helps a lot too. But now Disney has kind of slowed a little bit, right? I mean, they're adding a lot of international customers, but domestically they've begun to slow. But I mean, is this a case of them rocketing past Netflix going up or is this Netflix screaming past them on the way down? Right. There's a little of that, too, because as Disney has been adding and again, right, as we start to go back to the movie theater and things like that, you expect the streaming services to slow a bit. Uh, Disney's still adding some. Um, but you're right. I mean, the 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 sort of clawback of both subscribers and market value that we've seen at Netflix has just been incredible as well. And so, yeah, maybe they're ripe for overtaking by a behemoth like Disney. Uh, Disney lost a billion dollars on streaming. So are they just basically buying subscribers right now? And right, that's the that other thing. Yeah, that's the other thing that uh, I think was an interesting headline. It turns out all that growth comes at a substantial cost, uh, even for Disney. And so what they need to do now, and they did it right away in their earning report, they said, yeah, we lost a billion dollars on streaming. Hey, by the way, <laughs> we're raising prices, which has also been the Netflix way. Remember when Disney came out of the gate and even Apple TV Plus and Hulu, you know, Peacock was doing it with ads. Everyone undercut Netflix and everyone said, oh, well, maybe the Netflix day is over. Now, obviously, Netflix has had its struggles as of late, but it turns out you do have to make a bunch of money if you're going to be able to buy all these properties. I imagine it's sort of what a sports franchise does. If you don't sell somewhat expensive tickets and beverages and parking, how are you going to afford to pay those marquee players? And I think that's what the streaming guys are seeing because they're not only paying for the franchises, they're paying for the actual artists and producers and showrunners themselves. It's getting really expensive. So Disney believes it's going to be able to convert all of those new customers into steady subscribers, re-upping their subscriptions, even though they go up continuously for a while here. At a time when, you know, we're coming to the end of the, the Gen Z bubble, is there going to be enough kids to convert and their parents to convert to actually turn this into a money-making venture? 
It's a good question because what Disney wants to do is even beyond what you were saying. It wants to get the subscribers. It wants to then bring them into the, let's say, the ESPN world, the theme park world. There's so, so many things that Disney can sort of get you with consumer-wise. But you're right. You know, it needs a growing audience. And so far, all of the skeptics that have said, oh, Disney's day is over. People aren't going to want to go to theme parks. They're not going to want movies about superheroes have been dead wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, that's what D Disney is dealing with now. Now, historically, and, and, one and public scandal, I mean, in debate and all of that at the same time, which right. is probably not what you want to do when you're in, a, in trying to maintain a growth mode. And rumors are that the parks are not getting the same ticket revenues as they were getting a while back. That uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if Disney broke that way. out um, in its earning report. But one thing Disney has been able to do historically is change with the times. And they really, even though they weren't the first to do it, they embraced streaming. And now they've got this gigantic audience. Can they monetize it? That might determine where streaming goes from here. Because yeah. look at Disney's lineup that they offer a customer. It's pretty impressive. If well, they yeah. can't monetize that, maybe streaming is in trouble after all. But if they can... Um, you know, as Disney has, excuse me, as Netflix has, uh, you know, the timing may be, hey, here's what streaming needs to do now. It needs to buy these successful franchises. It needs to get on board with the tentpole movies, almost like what Hollywood was doing for decades. Yeah, I mean, you remember 15 years ago, Disney was considered a troubled company mm -hmm. with a bunch of dying content. And uh, here they are. I mean, that acquisition phase they went through, buying up everything, turns out to be an unbelievably brilliant business decision. And they're now they're now the big boy in town again, which wow. they haven't been in fifty years. So I mean, it's it's impressive. On the other hand, a lot of those franchises are getting older, and uh, there's been a lot of complaints from critics that you know the latest Marvel movies and all that are not very good. They're keeping their numbers up on ticket sales, but at some point, when does the generation get, you know, they got tired of cowboy movies, you know, I mean, are they going to get tired of superhero movies? I don't know. Uh, I mean, remember, this is this is not the first age of superhero movies. This is sort of the, the rebirth of Marvel and DC and all that. And uh, right, Disney is milking it for all they can. But the the interesting thing to me is they're doing it both in the theaters and on streaming. And that's what I think we haven't seen done all that well just yet is a major movie studio that puts out movies because we're starting to go back to the theater now, but also has a really strong presence on streaming because I think that's sort of here to stay. Um, is that something that they can juggle successfully? And how are they going to handle it when a big, like you say, you know, Marvel movie comes out or something like that? How long do they keep it exclusively in theaters versus the streamers who are waiting at home to see it on their you know, 80-inch television with surround sound. They probably got pretty sophisticated algorithms so exactly I don't know how to time <laughs> that at this point. No, all, all credit to them. And the nice thing is, whenever we see a company doing this kind of innovative stuff, and we're, we're, the, we're the beneficiaries of all this. Right. You know, it's been a fun ride the last few years, especially like you, if you have kids that are still in the Disney age. I mean, this, this is kind of another golden age. Right. Right. I mean, we made it, I mean, we, the companies that are doing these streamings made life a lot more palatable, especially for parents, but for anyone who is at home and wants 
entertainment that they can't go out and get. And, you know, you're right. Good for them. Yeah. Okay. So we're starting to see more stocks starting to tumble. Pandemic stocks in particular, those that are where we were waiting for when real life reasserted itself that these stocks that had benefited, these companies that benefited from the pandemic were going to get hurt. So Coinbase uh, loses $1 billion and announces layoffs. Uh, real money, $1 billion or virtual money? No, no. You have to report real money uh, when yeah, you report a, earnings. For a while still, yeah. Yeah. Roblox, the gaming company, down. Sweet Green, which is a delivery service. We, do we have it here in Silicon Valley? Yes, we do. Okay. Has big losses and layoffs. So these guys are getting hurt. People right. are going and back in. Yeah, those are three sort of new companies that represent, you know, what was hot. You had finance in the sort of crypto world, which is always up and down. I mean, Coinbase, even in the last week, has seen its stock go up as the price of Bitcoin has gone up. So clearly it's tied not so much to the financial fortunes of, you know, regular folks, but of cryptocurrency traders. Uh, you know, Sweet Green and Delivery Service, we've seen a lot of those have sort of a, you know, a, a come to Jesus right. moment as, as the pandemic, uh, you know, lessens its hold and people go out again. Um, and Roblox was a real pandemic play um, because it's, you know, almost what we're going to see in the metaverse. It's sort of an early version of that, but a very successful one where people enjoyed playing and enjoyed socializing online. And so it doesn't surprise me that they're seeing a bit of a drop off. But I wonder if, like streaming, you know, the Robloxes of the world are, are here to stay. People like gaming. They like socializing while they, you know, play games and um you know, like you say with Disney, as long as there's that audience of young people that's going to continue to exist, uh, I think Roblox is going to is going to be around. Maybe a takeover target, but they'll be around. You know, I'm struck home delivery services. They've gotten better, but they're facing two behemoths now. They've got Amazon on one side and they've got Walmart on the other. And Walmart's doing some interesting things. My wife ordered some household thing from Walmart. They delivered something, but it wasn't exactly what she ordered because they were low on stock. And the, the message was, what do you think of this? And if you don't like it, let us know. We'll come pick it up again and take it away. And I thought, well, that's an interesting new innovation in the process that Amazon doesn't offer. So, I mean, these big guys are trying to be really creative about capturing the entire home delivery market. And, right. uh, and that is a big threat. And by the way, that's what a lot of the grocery delivery services were doing during the pandemic. If they didn't have something, they replaced it with something else, sometimes with good results, sometimes not so good, you can imagine. But uh, I think any delivery service has got to look at uh, both Walmart and Amazon and, and just Shutter. That said, you know, look at Uber. Uber was propped up not so much by people getting in cars, but by its delivery service, Uber Eats. And that is really efficient. I know that the original version was, hey, we'll be delivering these meals in robot cars without drivers that we have to pay. We're not there yet. But the idea that this stuff could be delivered super, super uh, efficiently was taken on by DoorDash and Uber Eats and, and you know a lot of those guys as well. Yeah. There are vehicles flying all over Silicon Valley with whatever you could possibly want whenever you want it. And parking in, in the street in front of your house. Right. blocking traffic no no it's unbelievably brilliant i mean you think about it, why do people stay in cars because it's an efficient way to go to wherever you're going without having to you know deal with other people being delivered too 
you go down my street in my neighborhood at 10 o'clock in the morning and all you see are Amazon trucks, food delivery trucks, DoorDash, you know, UPS, Federal Express. It's amazing how efficient this is because it's, it's able to find the quickest route to any location. Right. And remember, all those people that are getting them can get out of their house now and go get whatever it is. This is how ingrained this stuff has become. And I don't see that slowing down no matter right, how trapped we are or untrapped we are or how free we are. People are really, really into this stuff now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Inflation has gone down a little bit, not to zero, as we heard, but it's, you know, it went down a few tenths of a point primarily because of gas prices and they're actually looking good out there look i've been studying you know everybody right now is looking at the gas prices of every gas station they drive by looking for the best deal but it looks like that is stabilized now the question is is that because they begun to fill the supply chain up more more people buying electric cars or the simple one which is people are cutting down their travel times to save on the cost of gas well, I think part of it is just the, the oil shock is over. You know, the price yeah. of oil has dropped by about $30 a barrel. That's a big Spec- thing. Speculative bubble, yeah. Yeah, um, and so people are feeling better about that. There was this, I don't think there was as much of a shortage as people feared they would be, but there was this shock uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine. And I think that has dissipated a bit. You're right, you know, we're coming out of summer. People aren't driving quite as much, so there's not as much demand. Um, and you know, the backlash against the oil companies had went all the way up to the white house. And so I think, um, the gradual, what has it been now? 58 weeks or something like that in a row where gas prices have dropped. And I think that tells you, you know, our economy hasn't changed that much. People are still driving, et cetera. There was this initial thrust of, oh my goodness, will we ever get our hands on oil again? And I think that has dissipated. And so now, right, gas is down to a much, much more livable level. It's about 50 cents higher, I think, average than it was even pre-invasion. And that's 50 cents a gallon, but it's not several dollars a gallon. Right. So people, I think, are able to drive around and then therefore have a little more money, um, you know, to buy other things. But grocery price is still high. There are still supply chain issues. Car prices are still high. And so we're still in that, uh, you know, inflationary time. But um, people are at least feeling better about things. And that's why I think we're seeing the stock market go up. And we know in food and those kinds of things, people are just taking alternative, making alternative purchases yeah. that are lower. You know, you're not getting the filet mignon anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, people are rational and they make rational purchasing decisions. And it takes them a while to adjust to the new normal. But I think that I think they're beginning to do that. Now, should it be the new normal? Who knows? But uh, we've accommodated the situation and we're moving on like we do with most economic things. Right. And I think this is going to be around for a little while and it's still dogging, I think, the Biden administration. But um, I think people are feeling overall better about things. And and maybe gas is the big catalyst. I think that's the one thing that really drove people uh, nuts and made them the angriest was just the sudden spike in the price of gas. It was something everybody uses and we, you know, we saw it in the heating and we saw it in um, our gas bills. And and for that to come down, uh, you know, everyone's sort of taking a, a bit of a breather now. Okay. Uh, in f- Bayer housing prices are dropping fast. Uh, you know, I like I said, I get these, these real estate flyers and there's no more of offered at, sold at. And, you know, and you go, wow, look at the Delta. That's amazing. 
maybe I should sell my house. Right now, they're just saying sold at, which tells me that they're selling under the listing price. And the prices around here are getting a lot more rational. Uh, but does this keep going? I don't see why not. Um, I think people are less inclined to jump into a house and a bidding war, partially because it's even as the prices drop, the mortgage rates are still fairly high compared yes. to what they were recently. So you know you're going to pay more per month. So you know, you're sort of doing that math calculation and thinking, okay, it's going to be more. Do I want to overbid? Maybe not. And real estate agents, as we do these stories, are telling me they're seeing fewer multiple offer situations. They're seeing fewer overbids. In fact, just the opposite. And I think I think probably the biggest catalyst for that is um, a combination of mortgage rates, but also, um, you know, as we get into inflationary periods and, and things cost more, uh, you know, there's just a little less money to throw at a down payment right now. Um, but maybe um, if the prices go down and people realize, hey, that window, if they need to sell, is closing, they'll put more properties out on the market. And yes, competition lowers prices, but it may stir uh, you know, the, the people off the sidelines to, to actually jump in there. And goodness, you have a long way to go um, for a homeowner of really any length of time in the Bay Area before you're underwater uh, as far yeah. as sales go and everything like that. I mean, it's still a really hot, expensive market. If you bought more than three years ago, you've so. you got a long ways to go to go underwater. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, but jobless claim, jobless claims are on the rise around here. Is that correct? I mean, I heard a crazy phrase I had never heard before the other day. And it was, are we are we facing a full employment recession? I mean, isn't our nation's employment unemployment rate something like three point or no, maybe it was 3.8% in the Bay Area, 4% in the nation, 2.2% in Silicon Valley. That's close to zero unemployment. Yeah, and it, well, but it masks a lot of people that have just not working right now but still right. that's still, a that's, stunning number yeah and it seems to be going down even as the economy is getting worse so you know yeah. and, and are always different they're always driven by something else they're a weird combination of different factors and it, it maybe well, i don't think we've ever seen a full employment recession before but is it even a possibility? Does that even happen? It's, it's a good question. And, and that's the thing, you know, uh, is it really a recession if, if everybody's working? Um, and I think that's what determines whether people are optimistic or pessimistic really is do they have a job and um, are they able to, to pay the bills even as those bills go up? Uh, so far, for the most part, at least the first answer is yes, people have a job and, and the bills are getting harder to pay. I get that. But what really sinks us into a recession is the fact that people are unemployed and having trouble making ends meet. And we just haven't seen yeah. the unemployment numbers go up much uh, throughout this whole thing. I mean, remember the lockdown yeah, that's said- That's the definition of a recession is low employment, I mean, high unemployment. Right. And we, we just haven't seen that. And uh, remember- there were a lot of jobs lost when the lockdown started and, you know, the stock market crashed and everyone had to close their doors and, you know, gradually businesses clawed their way back. It, you know, the, the biggest gainer, I think, in the last employment report was hospitality and restaurants. And that was a sector hit so hard all over the country. Um, and we're starting to see, you know, full houses again and people dining outdoors and, you know, all these wonderful ways that restaurants can make business. Uh, and so that's really good news. And so for 
young people looking for jobs for older people, veterans. Um, there are a lot of jobs out there, at least so far. And I think that's what is keeping people from really calling this a recession because unemployment is still really low. Right. Okay. Uh, Meta. I mean, there's this horrible, I don't even want to go into the details of this sordid abortion case out there. If it's abortion or infanticide, it, it's just a horrible story. But Meta turned over its records on the case uh, to the feds. Now, extreme cases always test the rules. And this is a very extreme case. But it, it, did Meta do the right thing? Well, I mean, I, I don't know that it's an extreme case. I mean, this is a case of people using Facebook Messenger, I believe a mother and a daughter, to talk about something very private. And the idea that this would be turned over and Facebook's response was, well, we didn't know that they wanted information about abortion. They just wanted the contact. They wanted the back and forth uh, messages. Um, and we talked about this as Roe v. Wade was first in danger and then overturned. Your privacy is really, really on the line here. And people got mad at Meta for turning this over. And I understand that anger. But look, if the government comes calling, most of the time, historically, these companies have given the data over, the conversations over. So, right, the, what I think, two things. One, if at all possible, keep anything sensitive about this topic off of your phone, off of technology, off of this type of social media. I know that's hard, but there's very little privacy for these things. And you have entire states and law enforcement going after this. It's really, really dangerous right now. The other thing, and this can't be an accident, but like a day after this thing broke, yeah. uh, you know, Meta saying it's got end-to-end -end encryption right. on it. Jordan sent me that story. Yeah, I, did, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Facebook finally started rolling out their end-to-end Right. End-to-end -end encryption will will help this uh, because it's encrypted. And so they wouldn't be able to tell what you're talking about. But really, you just can't count on these companies yeah. to keep your conversations private. And again, in some, right, in some areas, in some states, it's okay. But really be careful because there are states that are really, really looking for this stuff. And it's, you know, you can say it's not right and not fair. Um, and I won't disagree, but I'll still warn you to stay off if you can, because privacy is really, really in the sights of some of these states right now. Okay, uh, speaking of rolling over, Apple apparently has asked that its uh, Taiwan-based suppliers label their products as being produced in China. It's in an effort to uh, avoid disruption from strict Chinese customs inspectors after after. Speaker Pelosi's rising out of Speaker Pelosi's visit. Is this something Apple should be doing? I don't know. I mean, I don't ultimately think this affects any of their users or anything like that. I mean, it's obviously a touchy situation between China and Taiwan, and Apple is really, really in bed with China on, on a big level. So I, I and that's a whole longer discussion right. we could have. Right. How far you know Apple seems to be more in bed than any other company in America right now, except the NBA. Um right. but should, so, Apple be like, should Apple be like mislabeling components? Well that depends who you ask, right? If you ask the Chinese government, they're not mislabeling the component. Yeah. Well China, right? 
Okay. Yeah, but I'm sure that's America, the sure justification Apple uses out there. Right. And America sees an independent Taiwan. So I guess you would say, according to America, they are mislabeling it. So where does Apple side, China or America? I don't know. Probably with the, man, the, the component manufacturer and what they put on their mailing address, I would think. Perhaps so. Um, let's do Twitter. Twitter uh, has subpoenaed Larry Ellison uh, into the into the bay, into the trial about the buyout. Larry Ellison. Now there that now we're getting some interesting iconic names showing up. Uh, what do you think? Are they they're bringing Ellison because he's one of the people that signed on to Elon's purchase price, right? Well, I mean, right. I mean. Yeah. Elon was able to get a lot of investors and VCs on board, and I don't know why they'd need to testify. Um, who knows how deep this will get? It's interesting, you know, Larry Ellison for a while, well, for decades, was sort of positioning himself as the face of Silicon Valley. He really wanted that title. He fought publicly with Bill Gates, like, you know, rappers do. I mean, it was amazing. And yet the last decade or so, he's been very quiet um, his name did pop up and his voice popped up during the Elizabeth Holmes trial as an investor in Theranos. Um, he has a funny, not him, but an actor playing him cameo in uh, The Dropout on Hulu, which is, you know, if you believe that that happened, a, you know, a hilarious Ellison episode for those of us who have covered him for a long time. Um, I don't know that he's the key to Twitter. I think Twitter is, um, you know, we talk about the face of Silicon Valley and someone who wants the spotlight. This is all about Elon Musk and a contract he signed. And if Ellison can get in there, what is he going to say, really? Uh, you know, hey, he wanted some of my money so he could buy this company. Uh, and what else can he say? But Musk clearly wanted to buy this company and signed a contract to buy the company and got enough money from well-heeled people like Larry Ellison. So there you go. I have a Larry Ellison story, but I'll save it to the end because I want to talk about something else about Twitter. There's a, a website called uh, nextbrightfuture.com, and a, a guy there named Brian Wang just wrote a fairly sensational story that, that said, well, he actually did a video. Did Twitter bots hide a MySpace-like collapse? And he argues that Twitter likely has, and this is reinforcing Elon Musk, has 25% bots and not 5%. And he said there might even be as it might be as many as 50% of its activity is done by bots. That Twitter reportedly reported nearly flat daily active user accounts for eight years from 2014 to 2022. And he said if there was actually a growing Twitterverse of real people, that wouldn't have happened. And so he's working backwards from activity to suggest that. Elon might be right that half of Twitter isn't real, that that Twitter somewhere back there suffered a MySpace event and is is covering it up. I mean, this throws another little variable into the uh, into the controversy with the trial and everything else. I mean, I don't know if if one person's video throws a variable in there. If this comes up, because there will be undoubtedly discovery on this sort of thing in the trial, we'll learn from, I don't know who determines how many bots are on Twitter. We'll learn how many bots are on Twitter. Um, 
what are you going to say? I mean, I, I, don't no, I think, I think it's interesting. I mean, cause it, it, he's trying to bring something empirical into this discussion as opposed to, you know, we say, you know, must says and all that. He actually has a graph that it looks like Twitter's doing a, a Moore's law curve up until about 2014. And then it just goes level for the next eight years in terms of daily activity. And, no, I mean, I think uh, in their last earning report, they reported a rise in daily activity. So I, I don't know. Well, you know, minor, but nothing, you know, nothing profound, nothing like a company doing, True. you know, a Silicon Valley type, type curve. So who knows? But it's interesting, you know, as long as we're, we don't know anything about anything on this case, <laughs> just, you know, I'm throwing that into the mix. Okay, before we run out of time, my Larry Ellison story. Years ago, I, I did a PBS series uh, called um, uh, Betting It All. And I interviewed a lot of Silicon Valley CEOs, and one of them was Larry Ellison. And as opposed to like Gordon Moore coming to the studio and, uh, you know, standing around and looking at the cameras and all that, Larry insisted we go up to the Oracle, you know, Emerald City up there in, in Redwood Shores to his studio. And uh, we got there and we were we waited two hours for him to arrive in the studio and like a usual crew, everybody was sitting around talking and they put out a, uh, a platter of food for us, just snacks. And I thought, well, that's very gracious. And we looked over and there was another platter identical to it with a towel over it, a, a, a tablecloth. And so we were eating snacks and everything else and talking and um, one of us got up and went over to the other platter and started to lift the uh, tablecloth off of it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone ran into the studio, like we've been monitored the whole time, and said, you can't touch that. That's Larry's food. And so we, okay, so we sat back down and we waited. We heard some noise outside and we figured the person monitoring us was distracted. So we went back over to the platter and lifted it up. And we thought, what's it going to be? You know, hummingbirds and in, in boiling oil, lark's tongue, you know, uh, who knows? It could be, it could be magical food for, you know, at the time, America's richest man. And we lifted up. It was exactly the same food. So we realized, no, no, he wasn't having expensive stuff. He was getting the Sun King treatment that nobody else tastes Larry's food. And I thought, there's a glimpse into another side of Silicon Valley we don't often see. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah, that, that reminds me of some stories myself. Yeah, <laughs> very good. <laughs> okay, so that's it for now, folks. I don't have my piece of paper that says what I'm supposed to say, but you know what the ending is. You can catch us on uh, everything right now. Uh, the Business Journal homepage, Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, LinkedIn, and of course, YouTube. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.